This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the May 5th edition of Global Engagement. I'm Patrick Ryan, founder and president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. With me today is our special co-host, sitting in for Ambassador Dick Bowers. Today, you'll be fortunate to have insights and perspectives from Dr. Marietta Velikova, an associate professor of economics at Belmont University and a member of the World Affairs Council board. Dr. Velikova, welcome. Thank you for this incredible invitation. I feel very honored. Uh, because I know it's impossible to be Dick Bowers, but I'll just try to be Marieta Velikova. And thank you for this invitation. I'm honored, I'm excited, a little bit nervous. And if I forget my English, I'll just start speaking Russian. I'll <laughs> update. Did you want to uh, extend the Cinco de Mayo greetings? Yes, so for all our audience, Cinco de Mayo with Global Update, Tennessee World Affairs Council, welcome. Okay, terrific. Marriott, let me uh, share uh, just a little bit about your background with uh, our uh, visitors here today, that uh, you're a native of uh, Surgut, Western Siberia, and that you um, became a naturalized American citizen in this past December. Congratulations. Thank you. It was December 13th, Friday. That Friday, December 13th, worked out for me. Okay, well, with, with your sombrero there, you've, you've definitely set the, the bar high for uh, Ambassador Bowers. Uh, when he uh, comes back next week. Now, uh, your family is in uh, Siberia and presumably they're also enduring uh, the, the stay at home uh, quarantine situation uh, protocols that, uh, that we're all seeing here in America. Absolutely. But I think uh, just given the weather factor, they have been um, under quarantine as a government policy, but I think also the weather was a factor that help them to stay inside and not yeah. so eager to go outside. Uh, so as far as I know, they're still under quarantine. Which okay, really I think we've seen the same thing here in uh, Nashville. The sun came out and, and people started uh, heading outside. And now that we've opened up uh, stores and restaurants a little bit, I think more people are out. But uh, let me also mention that, that um, you've been busy with service work in the community besides uh, the work that you do at Belmont University and with the World Affairs Council. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to report that you were chair of the Sister Cities of Nashville organization, another wonderful partner of the World Affairs Council where you served uh, three years as the chair. And at Belmont, you're a past recipient of the Cheney Distinguished Professor Award. Well done for your achievements and, and accolades. Oh, thank you, Pat. I think my teaching award I definitely share with all my students, you know, uh, so if I have any of my students listening, so it's really a shout to all of you. You are my inspiration and you're really the meaning of what I do every day. So Great. it's really a word that belongs to all of us. Terrific. Well, let's get started. Today, we're going to talk about the top five topics in the news from the past week. Uh, first, let me add a welcome to members of World Affairs Councils joining from around the country. Uh, this event is part of the C by C Amplified, uh, an ideas summit presented by World Affairs Councils nationwide with the theme of putting the world back together. 
Uh, this week, councils from around the U.S. are working together to highlight the power of our World Affairs Council network. And we encourage everyone joining us today to support your local World Affairs Council, especially on Giving Tuesday, which we'll talk about. Uh, this World Affairs Council is contributing uh, to the summit with three webinars uh, that we'll have today and tomorrow. Uh, this news review, this evening's uh, speakers program, uh, which are our regular programs. Uh, tonight we'll be talking about U.S.-China relations. And tomorrow afternoon we'll have a special episode of our uh, speakers program. And the topic will be uh, Iran, uh, the maximum pressure campaign meets the maximum resistance uh, campaign uh, with three uh, terrific speakers. Well, let me um, remind everybody that today is, uh, is Global Tuesday, and uh, accordingly, uh, our World Affairs Council, along with, uh, with many others, uh, is uh, uh, asking that uh, people take uh, time today to uh, look at contributing to their local nonprofits. Uh, the uh, uh, Giving Tuesday is a global uh, generosity movement unleashing the power of people and organizations to transform their communities and the world. So I invite you to uh, support the Tennessee World Affairs Council uh, with your gift at uh, tnwac.org slash donate. And you can find additional information of how to uh, support what the World Affairs Council is doing uh, on the website. Well, let's, uh, let's continue with um, uh, our program today, and please make sure that you get your questions ready in the question uh, queue on your screens on the uh, the lower panel. Now, on to the news. Marietta? Okay. Well, since it's a global update, let's not wait any, waste any more time and let's get to the news. So, Pat, could we get to our first slide? You bet. So, we have... Excellent, excellent. So, I thought that we could, given the situation we are today, um, the entire world is consumed with news about COVID-19. Uh, we see difference in number of cases, we see difference in uh, responses, and I think that's what we will start today. Uh, next slide. So there's so much data, and I'm an economist, I'm an incredibly data-driven person and a mad scientist. So uh, there is data. However, today I do want to kind of us think and reflect a little bit on all this information that we see in the news. So I think the first point I would like to make, and I'm by no means a medical expert, I'm just an, eco an economist. Uh, I think there is a little bit of confusion among people between the number of positively tested and the number infected. So I think the first thing is that we cannot confuse these numbers. Second, I often get a question, so why there is such a difference? Um, you know, we, we have a case of our own country, United States, we have Singapore, Japan, we have Sweden. And so I think there, is, there are multiple explanations. It's um, how connected you are to the rest of the world through markets, through investment, through trade, through travel. Um, look at your airline, uh, just even airlines connection. I think it's also timing. For a long time, we've seen that all over the world, uh, COVID-19 went under the radar and undetected. So I think Italy and Spain, they were on the front line and so many other countries, um, they just, it's the timing. They, are, they, they will see increase in cases. And I think the other thing, it's also about infrastructure. And I'm not talking about just medicine and 
uh, medical infrastructure, public healthcare system, but it's also um, your supply chain. It's the ventilators, it's the um, preventive and uh, protective gear. Uh, it's um, how were you able to resolve those supply shocks to the system. Right. And the last, I, Pat, uh, apologies. What's that? Did you have a question for me? No, 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 no. I was just agreeing. Okay. okay, and so then my last statement would be, I think it's also about personal factor, and it's about each one of us, the decisions we make. Uh, no matter what the government policy is or the stimulus packages, it's decisions we make as individuals. So I think it's important for us to not mistaken um, misinformation and scientific evidence. Uh, it's all about good leadership, timely leadership, uh, and it's also about us making good decisions as informed citizens and as responsible citizens. Pat, back to you. Okay, well, let's uh, look at the numbers as uh, we've done in the past few weeks uh, with the uh, COVID uh, statistics. And uh, you'll see that uh, the total worldwide cases are now uh, over three and a half million with deaths over 250,000. And you can see on the right-hand side, the uh, uh, increase in cases uh, over the last month, a uh, very steep uh, incline. Um, the uh, the U.S. cases or the worldwide cases, rather, uh, the uh, the status uh, remains about the same. The United States is leading the world in total cases. Uh, the, in the top 10, China has slipped off. Uh, they've uh, somewhat plateaued, although people are uh, suspicious of, uh, of their stats. Uh, and Iran has uh, moved into the uh, the 10 spot there. But you can see uh, the cases continue to rise uh, significantly. Uh, the United States, uh, and these are uh, totals as of today uh, with uh, the daily uh, increases uh, indicated in the uh, the red blocks there. And uh, again, in the United States, uh, we're over 1.2 million cases, uh, 71,000 deaths as of today. Uh, you'll note in the CDC uh, map of the United States, a number of states, California, uh, Washington, uh, Texas, a few states across uh, the, the Midwest, uh, Illinois, and then up into uh, New England uh, have all uh, passed uh, 10,000 uh, cases, uh, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and so forth. So that's, uh, that's where we are in, uh, in the uh, COVID uh, report today. Uh, Marietta, did you want to um, continue with uh, uh, talking about uh, the economic impact I think uh, that's uh, that's our topic too on on the broadcast today. Yes, but so can you yes can you please share the uh, uh, wonderful thank you. So um, just to kind of just to make this parlay into the economy, because I think economy is a very important part of this conversation. So I said before about COVID nineteen. Uh, for me, it's just uh, like the government and the leadership and the infrastructure supply chain, all of the above is just important as what we citizens do every single day. And so it's interesting to observe the differences that we already see, existing differences and then different responses. So uh, even if we look at the economy, there is interesting difference between individuals thinking and collective thinking, right? So in the United States, for example, you know, during the spring break, we've seen people completely uh, ignoring all the 
facts and information that we already had coming from Europe and from Asia. And we went to the beach, we went to the parks. And so um, German people, you know, they believe in their gov government, they believe in their uh, science. And so they are much more driven by government announcements and um, scientific facts. So, so let's see how our personal behavior, our psychology, our decision-making, our personal choice plays out into the economy. I'm going to focus on US economy, but I think the implications even on the world scale are very similar. So just a few updates. I'm not gonna uh, overbear anybody with the uh, data. Um, so US economy update. So as of right now, and we'll see more data this coming, Thursday, but as of right now, 30.3 million first-time claims over the past six weeks, which is 8.6% of our labor force. That's according to the U.S. Department of Labor. So unemployment rate for April is expected to be 14%. We have never seen numbers like this. This is how unprecedented this event is. Uh, personal income fell to percent in March, uh, according to the Commerce Department. Personal consumption fell 7.5% in March. Uh, Pat, can I ask you, I'm just curious since I'm an economist and I'm talking over the numbers, can you maybe give me just an anecdotal evidence of your personal uh, you know, difference in pre and post corona, how you have decreased your consumption or change oh, habits? Well, I would be curious to hear since we all have been isolated so we no longer see each other and we can go and enjoy a pint of beer at our favorite you do. <laughs> well, like like most people in in uh, Nashville and across the country, I, I think uh, uh, we've cut back on on spending that we had been accustomed to uh, going out to restaurants and entertainment and uh, increased uh, spending on, on the home front. So I, I think we're probably a typical. We've been hunkered down here for a couple of months now, uh, so our spending pattern has definitely changed. Can we go back to our slide? Okay, perfect. So we'll, inter we'll interrupt the data with the personal stories because that's the whole idea of this podcast is just to make it engaging and we welcome your questions. So uh, I gave you just a few numbers. The GDP decline in quarter one is 4.23. The bigger question is what we'll see in quarter two. Uh, but I, the point I want to make here is that the, the habits of humans are changing. And that's, uh, and that's the real question. Uh, we can maybe um, release another stimulus package, we can inject more money into the economy, but the human behavior, the personal choice is at the, the core of this crisis. It's not an illiquidity problem. It's a problem of a consumer confidence and consumer having certainty and confidence in a certain level of income and ability to spend money. So, and then I'll just give you, it's interesting that um, as we look forward and there's a lot of predictions, there are a lot of different scenarios. The truth is nobody really knows what would happen. Uh, we hear that fall is gonna be much worse than what we have seen. Uh, there's gonna be second wave, third wave, fourth wave. And what I would just like, a point I would like to make that we kind of have already exhausted our toolkit as economists. From the monetary policy perspective, our Fed fund rate 
is already between zero to 0.25% range, right? And most of the time it's closer to zero. Uh, we have just fuel at limited purchase of treasuries and mortgage-based security. On the fiscal, we just released the largest in the history of the United States, uh, you know, coronavirus stimulus package. We already approved the additional um, amount for small and medium-sized enterprises and hospital. I'm not going to even mention the energy sector. Uh, it was one Monday, I guess, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, where the futures went into almost negative 40. As an economist who teaches supply and demand, how can I explain to my students negative 40 per barrel of oil? Uh, my brother told me, Marietta, that's our only chance to become millionaires. Uh, let's buy all the oil and we'll get paid $40 for each barrel. And as the Russian ruble collapses, that's gonna be a really good deal, especially for the Russians. Pat, have you bought any of those negative $40 oil futures? No, no, but uh, Have you become a millionaire yet? No, no, I, I haven't uh, found an oil tanker that I could fill up. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, move it along a little bit here, Marietta. We're, we're uh, running a little long on time, but let's, let's get into your next slide and, and see if we can uh, get to our, our next topic uh, pretty quick. Uh, if uh, you want to continue with uh, the financial uh, update. So I will be very quick given the time. I will be, I, I will talk about how we have to adjust and uh, be uh, spontaneous. So yeah, class, class is out. We're, uh, we're, we're not. Out. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I'll just make one point. So uh, what is interesting is, so I just gave you all this very gloomy data as an economist. Uh, but then my finance friends would say, well, in our world, Things are much happier and uh, the sun is shining. So that has been probably one of the most interesting disconnects between economy and the financial markets. Uh, April has been an amazing month in terms of the financial markets, has hit several records. Uh, don't ask me to explain it to you. I don't have the answer. And even Warren Buffett, who gave his personal interview on Saturday, uh, you can find it at Yahoo Finance, said, his finance. It's, he, he is confused. So if Warren Buffett is confused, I'm really confused. Pat, back to you. Okay, great. Well, I'm uh, watching some uh, questions come into our queue here. Just a reminder for uh, those who want to get a question in and we'll, uh, we'll hold them over to the end. Uh, please uh, feel free to uh, add your questions into the, uh, the question queue at the bottom of your screen. And we're going to turn uh, now to uh, uh, the topic of, uh, of China and uh, shift gears here. And I think uh, this, this topic can uh, best be, uh, be called strategic friction. Uh, there's a lot going on in the relationship uh, between uh, the United States and China. And I think uh, we can boil it down uh, to a couple of areas uh, from the news in the last uh, week or so. Um, the, uh, the most news was in the area of the pandemic and uh, exchanging uh, accusations and uh, a diminished uh, level of uh, multilateral engagement over pandemic issues. And uh, the trade is in the background, the uh, trade agreement between the United States and China is, uh, is always uh, an important item to discuss and the, the promise of uh, buying agricultural material uh, from the United States and uh, also the uh, national security issues. Uh, in, the, in the news this week, we saw that uh, 
the Chinese Minister of State Security uh, briefed top leaders, including President Xi Jinping, that the global anti-China sentiment was at its highest since uh, the uh, Tiananmen Square uh, crackdown. Uh, and, and that was according to a, a Reuters exclusive report. But we can see that uh, anti-China sentiment is rising, uh, not just uh, worldwide, but uh, specifically in the United States. There's been a response um, in, uh, in the US government circles that uh, we're going to be looking at reducing uh, the reliance of uh, supply chains uh, that we've uh, we've uh, been attached to for uh, years now, uh, dependent on China for a number of things, especially for PPE in the uh, the health section. And a State Department official characterized uh, the effort to uh, change supply chain uh, initiatives as uh, supercharging that initiative. Um, in in other reports, uh, we we note that uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo. Uh, who uh, spoke on the Sunday news shows uh, mentioned again that uh, uh, there's, uh, he said, uh, quote, there's enormous evidence uh, that the COVID-19 uh, virus originated in the Wuhan Virology Institute. Um, a week earlier, the intelligence community said that it, uh, quote, concurred with the wide scientific consensus that the COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified unquote, and they uh, continued with uh, the statement that they're rigorously examining uh, emerging information and intelligence uh, to determine whether the outbreak began through contact uh, with infected animals or if it was the result of an accident at uh, the Wuhan Virology Clinic or Institute. So that's going to continue to be uh, some talking points uh, in, in the news as uh, we look at uh, the relationship with China. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, bad sentiment over the pandemic. Uh, obviously, uh, we want to get to the bottom of uh, the origins of the pandemic, uh, but there's the looming background of national security and uh, trade issues. You know, the issues of uh, the South China Sea. Uh, we recently had a U.S. warship go through the, uh, the South China Sea, the islands where uh, the Chinese have uh, recently uh, instituted administrative claims over some of those islands, and they resist uh, uh, the U.S. Navy and other other vessels uh, from going through some of those areas. So that's uh, that's going to re remain a touch point as well. We'll continue to to present those uh, in uh, in our uh, weekly report. Uh, Marietta, I, I think you wanted to take uh, take on uh, China and uh, how we approach China in the 21st century. So we'll, I'll uh, turn it over mm -hmm. to you. Wonderful. Uh, can we go to the slide to just kind of just have a little bit of the framework? So I just, I'm not going to bore you with any more economic data. My economic update with all the data is over. Um, I really just want us to think as um, China, it becomes a topic that we can't not know, not be interested, not be curious. China is our uh, biggest strategic global competitor, but it's still our trading partner, one of our most important trading partners. It's a part of um, so many organizations with a loud voice that require um, an effort on behalf of all of us, uh, all countries, all global players to come together and make those decisions. So uh, I think there are a couple things that, a couple points I'm going to try to be very um, considerate of time uh, make 
So I think the first thing is how do we perceive or how do we understand China today? And I think in general, there is a lot of ignorance about China. Uh, we, we think of China as China 40 years ago, but China 40 years ago, China today, it's an amazing, unprecedented transformation of any civilization, any country, in the history of humanity and civilization. And so I think we can no longer treat China as a country inferior to us. Uh, it's got a lot of problems, internal and domestic problems, but I think in terms of the global scale and global leadership today, we are, you can agree, disagree with me, that's the beauty of a conversation, we are unequal. You know, even if you look at the response today uh, to coronavirus, uh, in many areas, the space that we left void, China is taking it. China is stepping up, whether it's World Trade Organization funding, whether it's other initiative. Uh, the vaccine race today is reminding me a little bit of space race between Soviet Union and, and UK, or United States. However, what I want us to see and focus that there is a tremendous effort to collaborate, to coordinate, whether it's vaccine, whether it's handling of this crisis, because we're all affected. Uh, Pat, you have such an amazing, you know, um, foreign service career. You've been to so many countries. Uh, when I say China, what are the most important things you would like to share with our audience? Uh, wow. That's uh, that's a big topic. I, know I think I put you on the spot. It's totally <laughs> off the script. Uh, I th I think my strongest impression was having been uh, I, I uh, served in the Navy 26 years and in the Western Pacific uh, much of that, and uh, other than uh, visiting Hong Kong, I never really got into China. But when I went uh, for the first time, uh, actually was with a World Affairs Council group, uh, landing in Beijing and just seeing block after block of high rises and the city of Shanghai. It was in incredible knowing, uh, growing up in the, the 60s, uh, watching uh, what was going on with uh, Mao Zedong and the, the Cultural Revolution and, and uh, the poverty that existed there, to see this incredible engine of, uh, of economic power uh, across uh, the region. Uh, I've been to Wuhan in Hubei province where the, the outbreak was from, uh, but other cities, Chengdu and, and Xi'an, Beijing, Shanghai, and everywhere you go, the, the uh, demonstrable uh, feeling of, uh, of growth and expansion is, is just palpable. Mm -hmm. And I just, I guess maybe just kind of to add to your personal impression, I think China, there's just so many facets to China, right? So there is a very high tech China, uh, the 5G technology, right? Uh, there is, there is no competition for China when it comes to 5G technology. It's public surveillance, artificial intelligence, robotics, and it is China. But then at the same time, I want us to really understand China on, in depth and not just little sound bites or little you know, anecdotal stories, but then you also have rural China. You also have state enterprises that are incredibly inefficient uh, so the question becomes what China will be in the next 40 years. Uh, the, the tension between, you know, the economy that is global, that is integrated, and, and the political system that is still Communist Party that controls information, that um, introduces social credit score, 
how are you able to be able to maintain that control over people, what they think, what they believe, what they want, uh, when your economy and your people travel more, become more integrated through trade, investment, uh, et cetera, um, both investment into China and outside of China. There's so much investment by China into the United States. So I think it's very interesting to see uh, will Communist Party be able to persuade its citizens that it's all about economic prosperity and wealth uh, at the cost of political freedom and human rights. So I think there are a lot of interesting questions. And I also think, I often uh, think that in order to understand a country, we have to understand mindset. And I think something very important that I read many years ago was that, that there's still influence and their way of thinking is shaped by the 19th century, uh, which was 100 years of humiliation. They're long-term thinkers, they're playing chess, uh, they're increasing military spending, they're building this phenomenal one belt, one road infrastructure to not only connect to other markets and diversify their economy, not just depend on Western markets, but also spread ideas, spread idea, their ideological model of how to build prosperity and wealth, their norms and values, uh, take control over supply chain. So I think all those things, uh, we don't have enough time today, but those are all really important things that not just about China, it's about us and it's about the world that we will be a part of in many years to come. Yeah. Now we uh, we uh, we gear this uh, global engagement uh, broadcast to students who are at home, and I would encourage them to uh, to really gain an understanding of China because uh, China and the United States uh, will be uh, peer competitors uh, for decades and decades, and understanding uh, the growth and the background and context of that will uh, will inform their uh, their daily decisions about uh, how to understand what's going on in the world and i'll i'll uh, i'll leave the the china conversation with just a, a footnote that uh, tonight um tuesday night uh, may 5th we will be having a global dialogue session that's our speakers international speakers program so at 7 p.m central time uh 8 p.m eastern time uh, john scanapieco who's the head of the uh, the global um uh, the global uh, information team at uh, Baker Donaldson, the, the law firm here in Nashville. Uh, he'll be on uh, along with Jeremy Goldcorn, uh, who's uh, editor-in-chief of uh, a newsletter and, uh, and a podcast on uh, China. He's lived decades in China and he's uh, uh, a top authority. So if you, uh, if you can join us uh, this evening for a more in-depth look at the US-China relations and uh, in the age of the, the pandemic. Um, Marietta, let's- Can I just say, I've heard both of those speakers. Great choice for the China podcast or China uh, part in this summit, summit ideas. And I really uh, encourage everybody to attend. It's so crucially important. Pat, back to you. Great. Let's look at uh, our last topic, and then we'll turn to questions. We're going to talk briefly about uh, Iran, uh, maximum pressure, and uh, the, the maximum resistance uh, that uh, Iran has been uh, showing um, in, the, in the Gulf and Iraq uh, and other areas. Uh, a couple of items in the news that we just wanted to, uh, to bring to your attention. Um, the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, uh, 
a, an encounter in the vicinity of the Persian Gulf. Iranian uh, gunboats came out and uh, they, uh, they were engaging in a swarming uh, pattern around U.S. Navy warships. Uh, President Trump, uh, Trump tweeted that uh, uh, he gave the order to destroy, quote, destroy Iranian gunboats uh, that harass U.S. ships. Uh, and that uh, signaled uh, kind of a new round of, uh, of tensions, uh, which also included American uh, reaction to a, uh, a space launch in Iran of a missile that uh, could be uh, uh, leveraged into a long-range uh, missile program. Uh, we also have in the news uh, this past week, there's been the tension over uh, the U.S. Uh, opposition to the expiration of an arms embargo that was part of the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, which is more commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, in the deal, there was a five-year embargo on arms uh, to Iran, and that's set to uh, expire this year. And the, uh, the Trump administration, as you know, uh, withdrew from the JCPOA in 2018, uh, but is uh, trying to exert uh, pressure through the JCPOA uh, to institute what's called snapback uh, economic sanctions. And I know, Marietta, you wanted to make uh, a note about uh, the effectiveness uh, in, in your view of, uh, of economic sanctions. So uh, feel free to, to add uh, some comments here. You know, I just wanted to just add, a, I guess, a couple comments um, as a person and as an economist. So uh, it, there are a lot of, uh, there is a plethora of economic research and economic data on effect of economic sanctions. Uh, it really doesn't matter which country you're talking about, Venezuela, Russia, North Korea, uh, Iran, economic sanctions are not effective. Uh, they don't really accomplish objectives we want them to accomplish. The only area in which economic sanctions are still effective is access to capital markets by these countries. Uh, that truly is, uh, that makes a difference. And I really believe now as a person, uh, I have seen uh, effect of economic sanctions on my country, Russia. And um, I have friends from Venezuela. And I just really do not believe that economic isolation is not the tool, uh, economic tool, political tool, tool, diplomatic tool to really get the countries to behave and the leaders to behave in the way we want them to behave. So as a person and as an economist, uh, I just do not believe um, in economic sanctions. Uh, I know it's country by country um, really case. However, most of the time people suffer, uh, innocent people just like each one of us who want peace, who want stability, who want their kids to have a chance to have a hope, to have an opportunity. And so uh, it doesn't uh, create a global mindset. It um, creates seeds for hatred, for um, nationalism and populism. So I do not support economic sanctions. Well, it's sad uh, to me to see what happened with Iran. Yeah, I think uh, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, doesn't see it that way. Uh, he, in fact, went uh, on the record as saying that uh, We'll, uh, we'll work with the UN Security Council to extend the arms uh, prohibition, but he said 
he added that in the event we can't get any, anyone else to act, the United States is evalu evaluating every possibility about how we might do that. So this is an October 2020 uh, activity that uh, you'll see building up uh, and adding to some of the tension with Iran uh, in the coming months. Um, and uh, we'll see where that goes. So we've got to put, uh, the United States is putting leverage on the European, what's called the E3, the group of uh, uh, UK, Germany, and France who are signatories to the JCPOA, uh, and the United States is working with the European allies, many of whom see that uh, uh, we're not really ready for Iran uh, to, uh, to get out of that embargo. Okay, well, that's it for our five topics. We have uh, uh, plenty of great questions uh, in our uh, Q&A section, and we have a question from Sarah Jones, and, and we'll, uh, we'll turn to Sarah in just a second. I'm going to start with a question from uh, Peter Gisela. Uh, Peter uh, asks, um, the COVID-19 national security, uh, there's been a demand for human resources to meet various demands, be it uh, contract tracers or food bag coordination, logistics, and distribution of food? Should these bans be sourced mainly by the private markets, nonprofits, or local, state, federal governments? Um, Marietta, you're probably better on domestic, economic, and commercial interests. What do you, what do you think about uh, uh, demands for uh, doing these various things that have derived out of COVID? Uh, private marketplace, nonprofits, local, state, federal governments? I, I I'm just really gonna say what I really believe. So that's why we're here. And I don't think we can just leave it to the private market. And the reason why I believe that, um, I'll just give you one um, example, Amazon, right? Yes, we love Amazon. Amazing that we can just get everything delivered to uh, our door. But one of their most prominent engineers just uh, resigned, I think a day or two ago, because he said, he could not continue work for a company that continues to accumulate power and wealth and control uh, when there is no really concern uh, or much uh, thought about safety of their workers. So if we just leave it to the market and Amazon is the private market, you know, uh, I'm very concerned for all the people, the, all the workers uh, who deliver it to us who are filling the orders in Amazon. So I think the involvement of government is incredibly important. Great, and we're gonna turn now to Sarah Jones, uh, who's got a question. Uh, Sarah, your mic is open, are you there? Hello, Sarah. Okay, we'll leave uh, that mic open. And, and meanwhile, uh, we'll uh, take a question in the Q&A. Uh, Q uh, from an anonymous attendee uh, who asks uh, any input on energy efficiency vehicle policy in China versus USA. Uh, recent research has said social distancing has not had a large impact on uh, emission reduction, so structural change is necessary. Um, and notes that the vehicle market in China is restrictive on foreign manufacturers' energy standards. Uh, Marietta, I was um, with a delegation of World Affairs Council, uh, council heads and uh, uh, board members and so forth uh, several years ago. I think it was five years ago, we were in Beijing, uh, Wuhan province and Shanghai. And in, the, in all of those places, part of our focus 
was uh, on the energy uh, market. And we talked to uh, uh, carbon trading uh, specialists. Uh, we visited an institute uh, for energy efficient cars, uh, electric, uh, electric cars, and really learned uh, a little bit more about what's going on with the Chinese uh, drive, not to make a pun, to, uh, to get uh, automobile emissions down. One thing that uh, surprised us was uh, the, the amount of restriction on people actually acquiring a car. It's not as if you get a driver's license and you have enough money to go buy a car. You have to apply for and uh, you're put on a waiting list uh, to get a uh, permission uh, to buy a car. But in terms of energy efficiency, um, we were impressed in that, that group with uh, what the Chinese were doing in terms of addressing the, uh, the market uh, and uh, the energy and pollution uh, concerns. Obviously, anybody who's uh, uh, paid attention to what's happening in China knows that uh, the air pollution there is, is horrific. Um, the U.S. Embassy in, in Beijing has a daily uh, uh, meter of air acceptability, and uh, it's uh, more often than not in the, uh, the non-acceptable or dangerous uh, levels. So they're, they're fully aware of the, uh, the issues they have. Uh, the problem is they have uh, over 1.3 billion people, uh, many of whom are rising into the middle class, and uh, they all want to drive. Uh, they all want the, uh, the uh, things in their home that require uh, energy. Uh, so the Chinese are bringing online more carbon-driven uh, 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 energy sources, coal-fired uh, coal plants, and so forth. So it's going to be a continuing problem. They are a signatory to the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, uh, and they have, uh, along with the other Paris uh, signatories, have uh, stated what their goals are. And uh, the last time we took a look, they were making progress on some of those goals. But it's a balance between uh, modernization, expansion of the population and reduction of poverty, people moving in the, the middle class, uh, getting on the road and uh, uh, wanting to drive. Um, Sarah, uh, not there. So let's uh, take another question. Uh, another one from Peter. China for a few years now has advanced a Beltway Projects uh, to Central Asia, I think this is what you referred to, the, the uh, Belt and Road, uh, One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, the project is Central Asia, Africa. However, all these countries' economies will be down due to COVID-19 impact. How will this impact these economic relations? Mm -hmm. Pat, I can take that one. So, uh, excellent point. Uh, but I think this is, goes back to uh, what I said earlier. China is a long strategy. They're playing chess, they're not playing checkers. And so I think it is definitely not a project that is going to be profitable in any near future, uh, but that's a project to really reshape global order, a global world order as we know it, just like United States kind of designed the liberal global order after the World War II, right. uh, change the world, that's what China is doing. It's, a, it's not just about economics, it's about um, values, it's about models, it's about ideas, and it's also, at the end of the day, it is about economics. Uh, do not want to depend on Western markets and be subject to tariffs on steel and aluminum and other tariffs by the United States. They want to diversify and they want to have access to the markets that have the largest potential growth over time. That's all I'm gonna say. 
Yeah, I think uh, a, a direct response that I would make to uh, to this question is uh, there's inevitably going to be some uh, forestalling of the progress of the One Belt, One Road initiative as a result of the COVID-19 uh, virus. I think it was, uh, Marietta, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, first quarter growth in China was down 6.8%. So we're seeing a global recession, if not a global depression as a result of the pandemic. And it, it cannot... Uh, but uh, impact uh, any of these uh, massive uh, projects that extend across uh, state lines. And as, mm -hmm. as the questioner noted, uh, it does uh, range from, uh, from China across Central Asia into the Middle East, uh, Africa, and uh, even into Europe. Italy signed on mm -hmm. as a participant in, uh, in the One Belt, One Road initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's gonna, be, it's gonna impact uh, development projects in, in many places. But still, I think there's gonna be a strategic press uh, for this infrastructure project and mm -hmm. and the influence that it brings to China. But can I just add one very, just, just add something to your point made uh, that IMF has already put out an estimate of decrease in global economy in 2020 by 3.2%. Just to give you, I always, I don't like just to give numbers, I like the context. And so in relation to the the most recent economic disaster we're familiar with, financial crisis 08, 09. Back then, IMF released the same similar figure and it was 0.3. So that's even the difference in financial crisis that we have experienced years ago and what is upon us now. So absolutely, Pat, agree 100%. Great. Uh, Marietta, we have a question uh, from uh, Campbell Lehman, who is uh, one of our academic WorldQuest students here in, uh, in Nashville. Uh, Campbell uh, asks, after the pandemic is over, uh, do you think that American companies will try to produce essentials such as masks and medical supplies in the U.S. instead of outsourcing them to other countries? What, mm -hmm. what do you think, uh, Professor Velikova? Okay, first, uh, thank you for a wonderful question, and I love our WorldQuest students. Um, excellent question. I think there is going to be right now a real global rethinking of global supply chain. The, the way we have built supply chain up to this point, it's based on efficiency, right? Uh, just on time delivery, no idle items, because we can ship everything. Um, so that's the system. But now this system has become incredibly vulnerable because it created these shortages of essentials, right? Just like what we have, like you have mentioned and Pat reiterated. Uh, so I think there is a rethinking supply chain failed. Most of the countries, a lot of countries that used to export close China from net exporter became net importer of those essentials. So I think there is going to be a major shift and rethinking of global supply chain. I think there is going to be molecularization uh, and really more maybe abil more ability to produce on our own those essentials that are so critical in times like this, because it's not a black swan event. Uh, we were expecting, you know, a pandemic sometime. It has happened before, it will happen again. So that's why it also exposed our vulnerability and our unpreparedness. Even as a country, we were not on the front line like China, Italy, and Spain. We had time and we still did not prepare. Yeah, uh, 
while we wait for the last uh, one or two questions, Maria, um, you said it's not a black swan, but uh, even though people were warned, decision makers uh, considered it not to be a likely event, um, unless they were derelict in the extreme and didn't evaluate all the uh, the evidence and information and and we wound up with uh, what has uh, occurred. So you don't think it was a black swan that uh, a, uh, a high impact event out of, well, maybe not out of the blue, but certainly not uh, expected like seasonal flu or uh, hurricanes and tornadoes? I think we didn't expect the contagion it, it proves to have. And I don't think we expected the danger. Uh, it now, again, according to the data it has had on the entire global society, but there was multiple reports by scientists, by experts that have been released uh, saying that we should be ready, that the pandemic is expected, uh, and we were not, but I think it's also, it points to a lot of other issues that I'm not gonna go to. Okay, one last question here, and this is this uh, definitely is up your alley. Uh, well, we have two questions. Let's let's get to this one. Do you think lowering the zero bond rate, uh, interest rate, will help stimulate the economy? Mm, and this is the, we're we're getting way out of global affairs here, and in, into uh, uh, maybe you, you we're can getting hang, into economics. You can hang you can hang a, you can hang a shingle and and charge for economic advice. But go ahead. That's what you get when you invite an economist. So hopefully you'll still invite me again because I love economics and thank you for a great question. You know, I think it's basically, I'm gonna make two statements. So um, the first thing is um, how effective it is. I think the Federal Reserve did what they could uh, because they understood the importance and they could foresee the economic impact. So it was i think like march 8th so when we were still going to the beach and we were going on all the travels and the life was as normal the federal reserve already like literally hit on all the tools in their toolkit so they were very timely uh the difficulty is that what's the purpose of interest rate right it's to stimulate us to go buy a house buy a car uh go to school but if it's pandemic I might want, I might be more inclined to because there is a lower interest rate and the lower cost of borrowing money, but it's uncertainty and confidence. And I'm going back to the personal factor, personal choice. And second, if I'm going to be sitting at home, why do I even need a car? I don't need a car. So I think um, the tools that are usually quite effective in this time are not as effective because it's not about you know, a life being normal and us just not having enough money to purchase something. It's me not having confidence. It's me not having certainty. Uh, I just gave you an unemployment data. Uh, it's everybody understands we're not gonna go to normal and what is this new normal will be, we still don't know. And so uh, if I'm gonna be still in under lockdown and restrictions, there is no reason for me to go buy a car. If I'm a freshman, I don't know if I would uh, go to school. I might take a gap year. So yeah. this is just my response that the effect, the, how effective these tools are, it's incredibly different from any other crisis. They're not effective. And I'll just say another thing. The bigger question is that when that bailout, massive bailout expires, what's gonna happen then? 
by that time maybe we'll be able to you know operate uh, and uh, I don't I don't know but I think the other big question is like what happens when the stimulus package is spent so that's another big question okay well we need a spin-off uh, webinar domestic economy with dr. Marietta uh, last question Cassandra Wade asks uh, many people are saying that we should be reducing our trade and focusing on being able to sustain our own nation uh, this is partially a result of broken supply chains and such uh, high current unemployment rate. However, do you think if we practice more liberal trade and come together globally to survive the pandemic and future waves that the high unemployment here and the global recession, uh, it might be battled with the emergence of new companies, delivery services, online professions, etc. So th this is looking at global uh, uh, employment and uh, how we uh, adjust ourselves to the post pandemic, the other side of uh, what's going on now. So we're close mm -hmm. on time. So you, can you do that in a minute? In a minute. Okay, go. 60 seconds. So first of all, that is one of my students. So Cassie, thank you for Ah, okay. And I'm going to highlight my students. I love my students. So uh, 60 seconds. So the first thing, I'm an economist. I do believe in um, economic integration. I do believe that uh, me as a professor, I can only teach economics. If you're not gonna ask me to teach political science, biology, that would be a disaster. And so I really believe that each country has specialization and we should still trade and we should still specialize. It makes everybody better off uh, in terms of a consumer, in terms of the cost, in terms of um, choices. However, I think the bigger question, I hear the concern about unemployment. Very, very um, serious concern. I think the reality here is automation, right? Uh, and for me, right now, what we see, we see deepened inequality. People who were unemployed or let go first ones, those are all labor-intensive goods, right? It's the hospitality. Right. Uh, so those jobs, the question is, when will they come back? And so I think what is happening that some of the industries are gonna die, new industries are gonna emerge. Technology is going to be at the core of this, you know, figuring out what the new normal is, figuring right. out how we solve this crisis. And so the most vulnerable, they, it's not just about them not having the skill set that makes them, you know, less likely to succeed. But now, coupled with that, they also have don't have access to technology, and so that's why my my heart really cries for those people and for this deepened uh, inequality. So I think it's not a question of let's make everything here. I think it's a question of what is our specialization because we don't want to lose access to all the foreign markets. You know, that is also a huge part. Sure. Well, it's it's a it's a global economy and uh, that was a minute and a half, but that's that's okay. You had your student uh, there. Uh, I, I think this is going to be a transformative uh, era. We were heading towards uh, a new paradigm in in the labor force. And I think uh, this will just accelerate it. Manufacturers and others will find ways to automate, as you mentioned, uh, automation, artificial intelligence. So I think when we get to the other side of this, we're going to see uh, that uh, they weren't standing still while uh, people were uh, were home getting their stimulus checks. Um, okay, uh, Marietta, uh, we're going to just talk briefly here uh, about what we have coming up. 
uh, in the uh, the World Affairs Council tonight. As I said, uh, global dialogue with John Scanapieco and Jeremy Goldcorn at 7 p.m. Central Time. You can still register for that. That's going to be a fantastic panel. Uh, tomorrow at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, this you don't want to miss. We have Ambassador William Lures. Uh, career Foreign Service uh, Officer, Ambassador to two different countries, uh, Venezuela and uh, the and Czechoslovakia. Dr. Gary Sick, who was on the National Security Council, uh, and uh, he's an Iran specialist. Um, he's a senior research scholar at Columbia. Uh, Ellie Jeremiah, uh, who is senior policy fellow and deputy program head for uh, Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And I'll be in on that as well. Uh, this is gonna be truly an international episode of, um, of uh, the Global uh, Dialogue International Speakers Program. So you don't wanna miss either of those. Uh, we invite our uh, World Affairs Council of America attendees to, to sign up for that as well. Uh, we ask that uh, all of you consider uh, that it is Giving Tuesday. Uh, your Tennessee World Affairs Council uh, cannot operate without your support. So if you could steer your way over to tnwac.org slash donate and maybe plug in five bucks a month, that would be terrific. Or you could uh, immediately text on, uh, on your iPhone or Android uh, text give and then whatever amount, 10 is the example here. But uh, if it's 20, that'd be fine. Uh, to 844-959-2934. And I'm reading a slide for the benefit of those who will hear this on the podcast. Again, uh, we, uh, we do archive all of our material on our youtube.com um, slash TNWAC website, a, a channel we have on YouTube, and soundcloud.com slash TNWAC for the podcast. You can go in there and find um, two years now of uh, terrific podcasts. Uh, some of them are evergreen. Uh, the topics and speakers uh, are still uh, good information that uh, you might want to listen to on your podcast. And as of the uh, pandemic, when we shifted from in-person programs to uh, these Zoom webinars, everything is uh, archived. So we've had terrific speakers so far and we'll have more to come. Uh, Marietta, uh, Dr. Velikova, you have been an exceptional uh, co-host. I, I thank you for spending the time to, uh, to prep for this and to go to your office at Belmont so you'd have a stable Wi-Fi signal. Uh, I think uh, Ambassador Bowers is going to have a hard time getting back in his co-host seat after uh, you today. I just really wanted to say thank you. It was really an honor to, have, to be a guest and uh, to be a part of this. And I also just want to say, uh, just thank you for all you do. You have been working for years to really uh, uh, bring the world, the global knowledge and the global mindset uh, to our community. So that just really a huge, sincere, kind gratitude to you and what you do behind the scene with the podcast, with the board, with the speakers, with everything. So thank you. It was well, really a pleasure. Marietta, thank you so much for that. Uh, we're, uh, we're about out of time today, but I wanted to thank you again and also to thank uh, our Tennessee World Affairs Council audience and our World Affairs Council uh, visitors uh, who joined us today. 
and uh, and just uh, we're happy to be part of the C by C Amplified uh, Ideas Summit uh, by the Nationwide World Affairs Councils, putting the world back together. Uh, so this week, these uh, councils are working together to bring you uh, really a marathon of terrific programs. So I hope people uh, will see those and uh, check into the website and sign up for some of the great programs still to come, like our Mark, show tonight. Can I just say one word thanking our audience? You know, sure. my only time on the podcast, that's my only time to have audience. So I just want to say thank you for your time. Time is the most scarce resource we have. You have so many other options. I know we all have maybe a little bit of Zoom fatigue. So thank you for your time, for your questions, for your engagement. Thank you. Great. And that, you'll stay healthy. That does it for us. Yes, everybody be safe. And please come back for the next uh, global engagement uh, next week. We thank you for uh, participating today. And thanks to everybody who uh, gave us some great questions. Dr. Vlikova, have a great day. You be safe too. Bye, everybody. Thank you.